The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap and Lies. I'm Ethan Gilson and this is episode 28. Today my guest is Tony Bonilla, who is the owner, founder, mastermind behind BNW Rigging in, well I say New York City. You're actually in what, Yonkers? Yeah, we're uh, we're up in Yonkers, but you know we just work the tri-state area primarily, Manhattan. Excellent. So uh, yeah, now you guys have heard his voice. That's it. That's the show. <laughs> That's all we're gonna do. Anyway, so uh, who are you? Uh, so yeah, I'm Tony Bonilla. Um, uh, grew up in South Jersey. Went to North. Uh, moved up to North Jersey to go to college. I'm throwing on some of that accent there for you. All right, and, so, uh, <laughs> so I got a very important question, and yeah. none of the listeners are really going to care about this, but I got some Masonic buddies from New Jersey, and it's a fight. Pork roll or Taylor ham? Uh, I was never really into either of them, but I know the fight, and I'd say Taylor ham. <sighs> All right. <laughs> I'll forgive you. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So you moved to North Jersey. Yeah, I went to college up there and um, I went to school for visual arts, for art education, and then fell into rigging years later. Um, but at the same time, uh, I don't know, I'm diving a little too deep of where I came from. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went to college for visual arts and got a job in the theater there. And... I was just pushing around paperwork for the supervisor of facilities. I didn't know anything about theater. I just needed money because I was a poor college student. And he was like, hey, we have a show coming in. You want to work the show, push a box around? And I was like, sure, I'll push a box. And they were like, wow, you push a box really good. <laughs> you want to hang some lights? And I was like, sure, I'll hang some lights. And then I got into um, you know, just being a stagehand in college. And but working in that theater was just outside New York City. So tourists would come through there before they go into the city, they'd pull us into the city. And then I freelanced around New York. And when I was graduating college with my art degree, uh, I got offered a tour to go on. I got offered to go on tour at the circus. So I was able to tell everybody that I was running away with the circus and I went on tour. And that's when I really got the rigging itch. Because I also rock climb, I, and that's when I started really rock climbing as well. I rock climbed and rigged on tour. I was like the my first tour with the circus. I was, I was just an electrician, but I learned a lot of rigging from the circus guys there. And which, which circus? And was it, was, it uh, uh, venue based or tent based? It was venue based, and this is like twenty something. This twenty years ago ish. Uh, it was yeah, twenty two years ago. It was in ninety eight. So it was kind of as Cirque de Soleil was just starting to get involved with getting indoors instead of their tents. Mm -hmm. um, this show was Cirque Ingenue, which was a bunch of de Soleil peeps that tried to start their own thing um, that hooked up with networks um, who primarily did musical theater. 
And so that's how I knew them because the musical theater piece would come through and then they were like, we're doing the circus thing. You want to get in on that? And so I jumped on board with the circus there, did that for a year. And that was, they only, they only toured that three years. I think it was two years before I did. And then I jumped on and then that was it. So that's uh, the tour, the first tour that I got on. And I kind of jumped from tour to tour after that. So you, you, you jumped on a couple of different tours, did that. Um, was there something in between that and opening up your own shop or did this, yeah, you know, how, you know, this how did that all, process happen? This was all through my twenties. I toured throughout my twenties. I jumped from tour to tour. I toured about eight years, pretty much straight. The most time I had off was like three or four months. And I lived in the back of my truck and I rock climbed up the Shaw Gunks in New York state. And I, uh, I just kind of continued jumping from tour to tour. And when I turned 30, I was like, you know what? I'm kind of done touring. Let's go back home. I came back to New York and was like, I need a place to live and I need some work. And everybody knew was still working. You know, they, it was kind of cool. Cause like I went on tour and came back and all my friends had like continued working here in New York and either progress some more or like, we're still just doing, you know, stagehand shit. And so I got into New York uh, with all this rigging experience and found there was like a need for uh, doing rigging the correct way <laughs> to per se. Um, I, I don't know about correct way, but I did get on to a, a job at Steiner Studios and the riggers there were uh, wrapping the chain around the truss and hooking it back to itself and flying it up in the air. And the guy who was doing it, I was like, you know, you shouldn't really be like hooking the hook back to itself. You know, you take some gag flag or say some, some round slings and you do this with the shot. And he's like, oh, this is great. You know, I own all this rigging. I guess I'm going to have to redo all it. And it's all hung the same way through the studio. And I was just like, very oh, European. Man. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was like, oh, man, that's kind of crazy. And I got into, uh, you know, really... That's what it got me into a little bit of um, back then. I that was like as the ETCP was coming out, and I got I went and took that test, and then I taught some seminars for a little bit, trying to help. But mo mostly I uh, managed the rigging department for the Cipriani spaces, um, on top of like just the freelance rigging jobs I would do. So they have right. at that time they had one space, and now they've got four or five spaces. Uh, and through that whole time, I've always like been the production rigger that managed the rigging department for those uh, five spaces and all the rigging that goes on in those buildings. And there's a head rigger and an assistant head that like do the jobs in and out of each one of those. Uh, but having, you know, being responsible for those venues allowed me to train a lot of guys in the methodology of rigging that I learned from tour and, you know, just be better arena style riggers and uh and that group of dudes we'd go out and rig other shows outside of the venues and you know then i got the opportunity to do a job that i needed some gear that nobody else had not really nobody else had but back then it was like tough to get self climbers you know yeah. to yeah like last minute like you had to schedule the shit it, the year before and if, it, it, and if it wasn't a roof yeah like it, you know everyone had self-climbers but it was a roof it's part yeah. of a 40 by 40 or 
50 by 60 whatever it was yeah and it wasn't like people just had like oh i got four towers and i'm just going to do a box and that's yeah it. and uh so we were at i was asked to put a rig up on top of aspen mountain uh for a wedding and i just needed i was like all right I, I can't, and it was last minute-ish, you know, it was like two months and it was going into the summer and I was like, I, I couldn't get, it wasn't a roof system. It was just, I needed a couple towers. I, so I purchased a couple towers, uh, out of like my piggy bank of savings <laughs> and, and, uh, that's kind of how B&W kind of got started at that point. That's that, that's what I consider like the real start of B&W. Others would say like, I, you know, I've been doing jobs. I, uh, for a couple of years at that point, and I would payroll the occasional rig. Um, but I still just considered it as like, I'm just a production rigger and, you know, they didn't have a payroll and all these guys are working through me anyway. Let me just payroll everybody to guarantee they get the right rate, you know? And, uh, then it turned into that we had some of this gear and we did this big job on top of Aspen mountain, which was like, it was, it was building a, uh, the, a replica of the church. It's a crown thorn chapel in Arkansas. It's at a teaching university. And they really like the, the architecture of this chapel. And so the decor company that was doing the whole job, uh, they were like, can you build this on top of Aspen for us? And then, which is like, we built it in a meadow at 11,000 feet in the back country. <laughs> like the guests took the, 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 the ski lift up to the top of Aspen, hopped in a sprinter van, went down a dirt road for two miles on the ridge line, and that's where we built this complex of there was like twenty-seven thousand square feet of tent and this building that I built that was a chapel. Um, and we aimed it across the valley so that the mountain range was in their background, so they could have nice pictures of being married in front of the chapel or in front of that mountain range. That brings up a uh, an interesting thing that you you probably don't think of when you run your cruise, which is, uh, you know, you do festival season. You're like, all right, we got to think about heat stroke, making sure everyone stays hydrated. But uh, you, you go to the the mountains and you think you, you don't think of altitude sickness as something yeah. that you got to deal with. Um, and it was there. You know, they, we had like dudes, we, there were canisters of oxygen, like cans of oxygen that you yep. could just just huff on. And dudes were just huffing oxygen all over the place. And they were doing it out of like, oh, I feel great. Instead of like, oh, I'm really feeling altitude sickness. They were like, oh, this is so yep. much fun. <laughs> like they're doing whippets or something. I was like, Jesus, yeah. guys, lay off the oxygen. It's not that bad. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I, I'm, I brought it up kind of jokingly. But you, when you watch the NFL and you watch teams go to Denver, mm-hmm. um, these are, you know, athletes who are in great physical condition. And they're still taking oxygen. You know, you're out there for 24 hours. That's it. It, it takes your body some time to adjust and just yeah. some different things. So um, you had talked about how you started picking up some equipment and that's kind of how you, you started, you know, hey, I have a need to buy some towers and stuff. You are probably one of the most active users of Mod Trust. And we just yeah. had <laughs> Patrick on uh Last episode, oh we really? About his stuff, yeah, yeah. It was oh, a, a great conversation with him. He's such a um, good dude. Actually, one of the the links that I put in the show notes was from the the Berlin Wall uh, mm-hmm. stuff. Were you involved in that? Is no. that no? All right, it was Mod Trust stuff, but I couldn't mm-hmm. remember if if you guys were involved with it or not. But um, 
you and I were talking before we started recording about being real creative and finding solutions to challenging problems. Is that kind of what drove you towards the mod trust stuff was the flexibility uh, and creativity? Well, at first it really was just like, oh, they got six inch structure that has like load charts. Shit, that's great. Because, you know, in New York, we're always trying to get as high as we can. And it means, oh, can we get it above this sprinkler pipe? And can we fit it over here? And all these weird places to get like where the client needs every square inch of the room, you know, and you're trying to get as much height as you can. So I was like, let me, let's get some of the six inch stuff and see what we can build out. Because, you know, like a lot of the stuff that we do, we're suspending or building structure to then hang other stuff off of, like, uh, and then the lights go on, like the other things. So I'm a big proponent of using the right tool for the right job. Everything from like, if it needs to be an eighth and eighth, like a quarter ton motor, use a quarter ton motor. It needs to be a two ton, use a two ton, you know, and same with truss, you know, if you need like, you only need this much capacity over this span, you know, you can get away with this, but, you know, and when you get into the mod truss numbers, when you play the numbers game of, of capacity and structure, there's nothing out. I haven't found anything out there that is like off the shelf, not being custom and you can get capacity of what this stuff can do and for the size that it is you know right. like if i have like there's been several jobs we've done where it's like i would i would have had to brought 30 inch truss in to do the span to get the load for the couple of points i needed to hang that i could do the same thing with 12 inch steel mod and now i'm only 12 inches tall and the weight difference between that span it wasn't really a crazy difference you know of what i was suspending so it's or even like laminating and that's another thing with it like you can put the shit together and get a stronger beam by just like chucking bolts in it and yeah, yeah. it sucks there's a lot a lot of fucking bolts that's like the love hate relationship it's a lot of bolts but yeah but you just you got to get employees who are smart enough to say they're going to charge by the bolt yeah right <laughs> 5 bucks a bolt man yeah but i mean it's just different attitudes of people you know if you understand that it's a lot of bolting like when i work with the iron workers that's all they do is bolts they like chew yeah. those things for lunch they're like reaching in the buckets just grabbing bolts being like this is how i make money putting bolts together and taking them apart and put them together you know yeah you know, like when i'm with yep. 40 or 580 or something like that so you know in some senses you know stagehands are a little spoiled with like how quickly things go together and put together take it apart and get out of here you know, mod trust takes a little longer, but you you figure out the ways to to help mediate that on a load in. A lot of times these days, we do immense amount of pre building in the shop with the structures and just bring it in on a flatbed. You know, or or design design the structure to be able to break break down so it can fit on the lift gate, get into a box truck, and still get in the door. But you can build it in bigger components ahead of time. Like if it's like something out, like a structure out of six inch truss or a bigger right. base plate kind of thing, you know, we do a lot of the pre-building. So you get a lot of that bolting done ahead of time and you roll in and now you're just putting big components of mod truss together instead of every single piece. Right. I think yeah. at first, like we still, you follow that philosophy of what you know, which is just bring the truss card in, break out the hardware and start bolting shit together. Yeah. Where if you can pre-build some of the structure and roll in with it a good like a 20 foot chunk of it built already and then you connect it to the other 20 foot chunk now you've got a 40 foot beam 
that would have taken you like an entire shift to build because there's so many bolts that you just put together in six minutes, you know? Right. So it's, it, it's figuring out the ways to work with the, the gear you're, you're using, you know? And I just yeah. keep, this keeps coming up because I, I get, we get asked to do very eclectic rigs. Um, so it lends itself to like, okay, well, it, they're coming to us because they tried designing it with 12 inch or 20 inch and it just aesthetically wasn't going that way. And they're like, Tony, what can we do to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, if we do this out of this type and we do this, blah, blah, blah. And we start to like problem solve it out. It, I, I end up being like mod trust. We got to use mod trust to get the span, you know, for the capacity. It happened like right. when we were like the first show that went into the shed in New York, you know, my it turns out my neighbor works at hudson scenic which i you know i bought my house in yonkers and when i was when i moved in i met my neighbor and it turns out he works at hudson scenic i'm like dude i work with you guys all the time and blah 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 you know so we we've become good friends and he what came across their plate was for the opening of the shed they had this big structure they had to build inside it's a two-story building and they had the an upstage and downstage traveling walls and each wall was like over 3000 pounds and it was a 50 foot span they had to put on that and there's a light ring in there and they had to put a lid on top of the box inside there so it was like it had a roof too of plywood so it was like this building literal building because there's no green rooms out there like in the shed uh there, it's just a big open space so there's no backstage or anything so where they were putting the stage they needed backstage room too so they had to build a green room into the set that they were building and they're like, what type of trust do you have, Tony? And I'm got, I got 30 inch and blah, blah, blah. What are you guys making? Uh, and like, they started describing it. And I was like, 30 inch isn't going to cut it, man. Like, it's just not, it doesn't have it. You're going to have to either custom build all this shit or you can laminate some mod trust together. And then after we started looking at it, I gave them all the specs and they started looking at it and they ended up laminating the steel mod truss. Because then you get a two foot tall steel beam that you just put together. And they did that upstage and downstage. And then it's cool. The mod truss, you know, you can bolt standard truss to it. So that's upstage, upstage, downstage spans were standard truss. So you can hang your lights and it was lighter weight in that regard. And it kept it square. And then, you know, did the, the main beams have the, the steel mod truss and it saved them massive amount of work and got the capacity up to where they needed it to be at. So th those are, you know, I'm, uh, it's not so much, I'm a, I'm a, I am a huge mod trust fan, um, but it's not like that's the only thing we work with. Uh, right. It just turns out a lot of the jobs we get asked to do, it's the only thing that'll it, do it. it. It's the right tool for the application. Yeah. And it, and it's funny, it, I don't think we mentioned this at all talking with Patrick, but one of the questions for people who haven't really delved into the engineering of trust, one of the reasons why mod truss gets the capacity they do in a smaller footprint versus traditional truss is the fact that sometimes on traditional truss the limiting factor is the strength of the welds and because yeah. mod truss yes it's welded together you have you know yes it's technically six sides but let's ignore the end plates because you basically have four sides that are welded together that welds in a different place to say than on your traditional truss where the welds are on the diagonals. Mm -hmm. So because it's a plated thing, it's like a beam, you get more capacity out of that. 
in this smaller footprint. And I think I've mentioned before to people, fundamentally in all beams, your height is the number one factor in its strength. Obviously yeah. material, you get too tall and not deep enough to save is what we call slender ratio. So we've all seen photos of a ladder or an I-beam truss bolted together. And when it gets real long, it starts bending in the middle, left and right. That's called uh, the, the generic term is slender ratio or buckling. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, basically the height or the material. Clearly, if yeah. I build a truss out of balsa wood, it's not as strong as steel. So mm -hmm. all those different variables are what the engineers play with to try to yeah. get. It's also the, uh, the thickness of the materials in different yep. places, right? That's where a lot of like mod truss strength comes from as well. First, it's like there's way less welding. You know, there's only like one really long. What there's two really long welds along the whole thing. And then that's it. It's not every component the way a stick of truss is like every piece yep. of aluminum gets welded to another one. It's just like. They take a two foot piece of flat, like uh, flat stock, you know, plate steel or plate aluminum. They bend it into two one foot angle iron and an angle iron and then weld those two together. Like there's not much welding. But then you take yeah. inside there and you put that steel plate behind it that then pushes the load out to the edges. And it creates a half inch plate steel behind a quarter inch piece of material, whether it's aluminum or steel. So now you've got like that five eighths inch mm. piece of steel that's like a foot tall. Like there was a structure that we did where I was asked to then insert a balcony into all the towers. So we like put the mod in, it was a, it was standard truss going up to the roof for, you know, 12 inch truss to create like the roof of the building that we were building this fake building inside the tent. And then they wanted a balcony level. So we inserted mod into it and to get the floor rating up for it, we couldn't like the, it was aluminum mod, it was early on in the days. They didn't really have a lot of steel mod out there, uh, especially like to buy or to rent. So we were using aluminum mod in there and it couldn't take both the weight of the roof coming down on top of it and the floor load at the same time. And we were banging it around with the engineers and we ended up being like, dude, what if we just, we just sandwiched steel, the two steel washer plates right in the column of the vertical on the offstage side where that held up the roof to transfer the load through the aluminum mod. So it's like that spacer plate of steel inside that, and then, and there was an additional piece of steel that we plated in there that we found in, in the model, in the engineering model, when we were running the numbers, they were like, you have a really weak point right here. So let's just plate that one together there. And that'll make it stronger to be able to, to, to run the yep. load through the beam. You can't do that with regular truss. You can't be like, oh, this part's going to be the weakest part. Let's just splice in a plate for now, and then we're good, right? Yeah. Like, yep. that's so cool to be able, like, instead of, like, I got to get a fucking W, like, 36 instead of, like, I really only could, I could do this with a W beam that's, like, a, you know, a 24, but I got to go to 36 because I need it beefier in this one place. Yeah, you, yeah. you can just add some material where you need it. So that was another eye opener to me that I was just like this shit, like, like when you have issues, you can stick to keep a slimmer profile on a lot of your structures, in, which is what the client always wants. The client never right. wants to see structure. See they stuff. never want to yep. see anything. They want it to magically just be there. And whether it's floating up in the air or it's like a wall that's like six inches deep and 40 feet tall and there's no base. It's like, why? That doesn't work. <laughs> I just want to, yeah. Why can't I hang a light there? Because there's no building there. Yeah. But I want it there. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So it, it it's pretty cool that you can like help navigate the conversation into like, like to keep, keep the artistic integrity there with still modular based stuff off the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. It's not all custom. Yeah. What, uh, what's the toughest project you've had to work on? Uh, I would, the, the shed installation project we were chatting about earlier. Um, yep. before so the show. I'll, I'll throw the link up. If you haven't seen it, the building's not that old. It's only a few years old, but, uh, it's the shed in New York City, and they have a video of it uh, moving. It is, uh, oh, how would I describe it? It's a giant arched roof on wheels. It's like a it, shell. It's like, you know, you yeah. have a four-story building that they put, like, a conch shell over the top of it. Think, think, and then that it, thing it, travels. It's like you took the sky, uh, the, the uh, sky Dome in Toronto. And just cut the top off and put that on the ground. It's yeah. kind of, it, although that rotates too, but it's that idea of a roof that moves over the area and uh, does stuff. And I'm, I'm fighting not to click the video to play it so that, you know, we get the audio while we're recording here. Yeah. Um, it's a really cool thing. Like, uh, it's definitely unique in the world, like the, the whole building. What it does, it create the the shell of this building sits over the top of this four story building. So this shell, it, it's like three sided and mm -hmm. it covers the building for part of the year. And then when it's time to do shows, they can drive the shell, the roof and the three other sides of the building, like drive 125 feet into the Hudson yard. Um, and it just takes over that space and it creates just a big empty room. That's yeah. 112 feet tall to the grid. It's like 125 deep-ish by a, about 125 wide. I don't think those dimensions are quite right, but it's about that size. Just creates big, open, empty space. And it's got crap tons of capacity. Um, you know, it was built to take weight. And then the wall of the building that it's traveling over, the first two floors, those two walls can retract and open up. And they each open up into a 20 foot tall, 200 feet long by 80 or 90 feet wide rooms that are galleries. And so those two floors can open up and you can include that into your space of like this big open space. So it really is a unique building that was primarily when it was from my understanding before I got brought into the small part that we had were involved with. Uh, it was built for more of the visual arts. And then they you know, in a combination of we need to save money or how can we save money? And they were like, well, we pay so much in taxes, occupying so much of the real estate and New York, it's like real estate is prime. So they're like, how can we withdraw, like not take up so much real estate? They were like, well, let's make the building move and we'll give you a tax write off. Cause then, so they get a tax deduction on the parts of the year that the shed is retracted basically so they don't right. have to pay they don't have to pay taxes and it's like this huge it's like over the course of like 10 or 20 years it's like billions of dollars oh yeah that, sure. that they don't have to pay um and so it creates this really unique experience as well you know and uh they designed the building um put this space into it and during the process you know they were like oh well we'll figure out how to make it go dark later 
Uh, they kind of knew it had to do that, but they didn't know how involved it would be. And it became a big, they started building the building before they had this figured out. Um, because that space, you know, if you're going to do events in there, it's got to be able to go black. Right. Right. And then in, and in building a building that needs to travel, you know, they, they, they veered away from doing, it's kind of genius. They veered away from doing rigid glass to be a transparent, they made balloons so that as it moves and then the torsion that runs through that building, as it moves, it doesn't start popping panes of glass and blowing up glass all over the place, you know? Mm -hmm. So they did it out of balloons. So, but those balloons are like, they have inert, inert gas in them. That's being pumped 24 hours a day, 365 a year. They keep these things inflated and that's like the outside of the building. So it's like transparent to inside in a very loose sense of like looking through a shower curtain. Um, yeah, so, you can look at some of the uh, the artist renderings and, and the original idea of of being more like a, a glass structure that moved in where it is now in, in the actual reality. It's pretty yeah. cool. But as far as our part in doing it, we were brought in to help install the final version they came up with for the shades that, to make the room go dark. Um, Initially, they contracted a turnkey solution from a company to remain nameless. And they said they'd do it for X. And then came after they are indeed it, they said it would be no, it's this revised X, which was way more than what the shed wanted to pay. So they withdrew from them and then opened it up to like, you know, the, the construction management firm that's running the building project and the ownership of the building were getting together. And one of them has like a super yacht, I think. And they were like, we just need these really big sails to go up and down. And so they reached out to a super, like a, like a yacht company to find out how they make these things, these big heavy things go up and down. Cause the shades themselves like are anywhere from uh, 90 to a hundred and, 20 feet long because um, they come all the way down to the floor. They weigh 14,000 pounds, you know, the big ones and the smaller ones are like 12 or 11 or 12. So they're not light by any means to pull up into a track and get up onto this big steel mandrel. Uh, so there's 14 of these steel mandrels and steel and shades that are these monstrous colossal shades is what some of the guys were calling them um, that needed to get installed. So we got a, uh, asked to contribute in trying to put these things in and it was that that was the most challenging job that i've had and i pulled out like a lot of tricks for that how how long of a project was that well it was like we were brought um, in way late in the game on site i should say because obviously there's a lot of pre-production in, in meetings and well yeah that's why i was just getting at with like for us that we didn't get a lot of that you know they were yep. still designing some of it while we were trying to put these in which was crazy for a building of this nature to still have like like it hasn't been figured out yet you know um but it was like three months two three months of pre-planning and then it was about three months to four months to install all 14 shades in the middle of winter and without the sides of the building on yet. Nice. <laughs> like we were like working, it was like working, it was working outside. We had to shut the down, to shut the site down twice because of wind, because it was like, they didn't have the inflatable walls installed yet, you know? 
uh, on sides of the building. Like they were still getting those installed. What, like it was a massive project and undertaking and we were responsible only for the shades and the mantles being installed. The steel attachment points that we had to install these two came on the same boat as the mandrel and the components like that we were mounting, you know, so they still hadn't even drilled the holes yet when we started like figuring out our stuff. So actually that the first month of us trying to install anything, we didn't do anything. We just went in there and prepped and prepped and sat around and it came, we were in there a month and I just took everybody off site and was like, you guys need to work on drilling these holes in the steel and, and attaching the tracks and all the other stuff. And then when we'll catch up to you, you know, get a bunch of that work done. So they did that. And then the new year came in and we went in and, and began our process. And our process was like, there were, there were in, in a basic sense, there were two versions of the lift of the lifts, right? There was the version to do the east wall, which were four mandrel positions for four of the shades. And then the other 10 mandrel positions and shades. Uh, the ones on the east side of the wall were are on the east side of the building are in this like cantilevered area where you can't do a direct pick and lift straight up. So to pick up the mandrels and put those into position, now the mandrels weigh 8,000 pounds. And we had to fly it up, pivot it because it was longer than the hole we had to put it through. Like if you think of as a football field goal and it's like that wide, our mandrel was two feet longer than the distance between the two vertical beams. So we had to like pivot it, insert it on the other side and pivot it back and then readjust it to get it in the position. And these mandrels live at the roof. Um, so luckily there's a theatrical grid on the one side and I, so I didn't find out that these were 8,000 pounds until about 10 days before we had to lift one. I asked and I asked the engineers and they kept saying, and I, I got them to like, I got, I made this big stink about it, had a big meeting with the manufacturers and the fabricators. And I was like, how heavy is this thing? It's, it, it's got, we found like 10 different weights over the hundreds of PDFs of design. And I was like, I couldn't find the actual weight. And I was like, how heavy are you? You're shipping them. You must know. And the dude came back and was like, 3,000 pounds. I'm like, great, sold, 3,000 pounds American. And we got in there, or 10 days before, I finally, I'm like, I need the center of gravity of the mandrel because the motor is on one side and the rest of it's hollow steel tube. And the only way to get this thing up was like we had to pick it in one position, in one point in the middle, balanced, so that we could fly it up, pivot it on that one point, get it on the other side of these beams, pivot it back, and then have room either side of that point to then attach two more motors to it. Because when we got to the roof, we had to pitch and yaw the thing. So we had a whole gantry system built above the roof and we cut holes in the bill, in the floor, in the ceiling. And, you know, so we could make these other two attachments that would then like pitch and yaw this steel drum. Uh, so so we had, I had three two tons that were bridling down. So I did a three, point moving bridle with two tons, two ton single, single chains. And that's what we had spec to go. And then all of a sudden they're like, it's three times as heavy as I was told. And I'm like, we added three more two tons and bride and we did a we did we did all motor up on six two tons in three positions. And then at the bottom did a block and fall like a block, a wire block to to equalize the load and bridled off of that. 
So we picked it up as a moving bridle inside the building off of two positions. Then the third position was outside the building in the cantilevered section and drifted it over there off of this single point on it. The whole time, two boom lifts like pushing and yawing this fucking thing through the beams and getting it set up. And then we did a transfer of that load at about 60, 70 feet to get it on the other system, the gantry system for the final pick all the way up to the roof. Yeah, I can see why that's a pain in the butt. Yeah. So it was it was really cool. Like, you know, doing shit like that was like it was a lot of fun, you know. The, the, yeah, like it, looking back, it was really cool. It was tough problem solving because when you get dudes coming in and just tripling your load, like right before you're about to, like, really? What the fuck, man? <laughs> like, well, we were in the now, same meeting where you said it was 3K, right? <laughs> like, it's the, the perfect fuck? example of the title of the podcast when people ask why why the lies. It's because no one tells the rigor the right thing. Oh, right. sure. It's, it's 3,000 pounds. Okay. Maybe a third of it's 3,000 pounds. So, you know, it's 9,000. Yeah, it's yeah, it was in, the only, in, luckily like I was so hard up on getting the center of gravity from these guys, you know, because it, yep. it, because we when you ha you have those three fixed positions that you're pulling from for your motorized bridle, it's like you in order to get it to pitch and yaw correctly to get through so you, you don't max out your limit between two of the motors because you're, you're basically just pulling it between two motors back and forth like just switching the third motor over and pulling it one way and pulling another way. Right. So you have a limited amount of movement horizontally, and that's pending on where you put those three positions of your motorized yep. bridle. So it's like, if we didn't get that third point in the right place, we would run out of movement horizontally in that direction and not be able to, I mean, we're talking like fractions, fractions of an inch, like we're talking fractions of a millimeter, like we're, we're like down to like, all right, we need, we were doing bumps that were like, all right, I need two millimeters this way, two millimeters, you know? So we had, so on the final lift, we had three two tons to manage that, which I did a split of like 80% of the load on the two two tons. And then the third two ton was just kind of there to pick up the one end and control the pitch and yaw. But the primary load was on the other two motors that we did most of our pivoting off of. So that got all the way up and we had to pitch and yaw this thing around. And it, so we put them on these variable speed two ton motors and they were all on two ton uh, motorized trolleys so that we could just like hit the button and let it over that quarter inch this way, quarter inch that way, yeah. eighth of an inch this way. Were you guys, and because, I'm sorry. I was going to say, were you using load cells? Uh, I didn't put load cells on that part of it because we were so over capacity on the motor end um, and we needed so much height out of it. We didn't really earn it. We had load cell. No, no, I'm lying. We did have load cells in it. We, we weighed it first. Yeah. I mean, and then the, the, the reason I brought it up is that I didn't, um, we didn't use load cells on that pick. We used load cells on the, um, we did a whole nother for the other 10, uh, mantles to get up and onto the grid. We we built a barge basically to get that up onto the grid. And we had load cells on all that. Yeah. Uh, when you do three legged bridles, you know, load distribution can be very tricky. And and you alluded to it where basically you knew at any point two of those motors would support the load, and the the third one is really your your controller movement. But 
I figured I would ask just in the, you know, yeah. curiosity thing. So I tend to, I use load cells when I know I'm going to be close, but like if all the load went on two of the two tons, we were still good to hold the thing in the air. Right. Yep. So it's like, and I mathematically the fleet angles that we're like, you know, cause I, I, you know, I model everything I do out. You know, so it's all modeled in 3d uh, in Vectorworks, Right. So I know every angle and every pitch that we're going to have like in a lift. So if mathematically, because of the geometry, we're not going to get to 50% of the load on the system we're carrying. It's like, do I need to put load cells into this right. system? Like I'm more than adequate in every single thing I do right in this yep. thing. So uh, even like I, I fall into that trap too, a little bit with video walls as well. Cause everybody's always like, you have a really big video wall and you should have load cells on every single point. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, but like the video wall itself, these days, a lot of these video walls are rigid enough to carry the load through itself, like to, to skip like one connection on bumpers. Right. So if I put like, if there's 10 shackles on a, I put a one ton motor every meter across this thing and they're all motor up and the wall itself, like I have four times the amount of lift that I need, but it's primarily so that I keep I have enough horsepower in this rig to make it go up evenly. So no motor has to work harder than the other. And they all have the same, basically the same distance from the eight way. So it's like, we don't voltage drop. Isn't much of a concern because yep. of the inherent distance we have and load isn't much of a concern because it's, it's so there's so much horsepower in this thing and it's so even right. across it. Like, and I'm looking to get all the trim I can most of the time. So it's like, I can't put another six inches into this thing. Because like the reality is a lot of LED walls minimize the amount of structure they have to keep the weight down. But the downside to that is their, uh, their connection left, right between panels is not the strongest. Yeah. So the reason why most LED walls on their bumpers, you're picking up every column is because they're treating every column as a separate load. Yeah. And they don't want to rely on the interconnected uh, left and right component for load distribution. Now, there are some manufacturers who are like, yeah, we're going to go a different direction. Um, but the other thing is, if you talk with engineers, when you, you think about a beam like a truss, we talk about truss deflection. So you take 40 feet of 12 inch truss and you put a thousand pounds in the middle and that thing smiles. And you're like, wow, look at all the smile. Maybe you're overloading it at that point. Well, like I mentioned earlier, the height of a beam is the most significant thing of its strength. Well, if you take an LED wall that's designed well and it's 30 feet tall, that's a really tall beam. It's really stiff. So it doesn't deflect the same way that you imagine your truss or a beam to deflect with a bunch of loads. And it's at like an S curve, let's say or an S wave mm -hmm. LED walls really rigid and really straight, which is a good thing because that means it's not going to load the motors unequally as it goes up. Now that's assuming the thing's not shifting. It's not poorly manufactured and falling apart on you. Um, and the size does change that. Obviously if it's yeah. a smaller wall, you don't have as much stiffness, but you don't have as much weight. Yeah. So that is one of the advantage of big LED walls is they're really stiff. So yeah. 
you don't well, it's need... also like i i've noticed too like when i work with dudes that are like really caught up on the load cell on these big walls you know i we we put in um samsung phone the samsung 8 launch for the phone and it was at park Ave armory in new york and we the big lift of it was we had a two 40 by 80 foot video walls that made a right angle and that right angle in the middle made a corner and then the floor was like a diamond video wall or video floor and the pixels of the video walls of these 40 by 80s had to line up with the pixels of the floor so you know and that this was a few years back you know but uh, you know i forget the product we were using we were working with ct um they did the video wall and you know this is a massive video wall. It weighed twenty four thousand pounds you know as far as as far as like a quick installation thing you know that's a that's pretty big uh yeah. and you know to line everything up and to bring this size wall in we ended up using variable speed motors or i was like we need to use variable speed motors because to control to come in like millimeter at a time so we can get these pixels to line up in the right position for the floor. You know, like we were just upstage of it so it would go behind it, but you didn't want to go too far down. And I didn't want to bounce this thing into the floor and smash the bottom row, you know, trying to get this wall in and out. Um, so we ended up, because of the number of positions that we, you know, we have to spread the load out as well. Cause we also had like an 80 by 80 foot lighting grid that went over that. We needed trolley systems on the front and back side to access the wall because you couldn't just drive a lift over to it. Um, you couldn't get a big enough lift to be able to like reach across the 80 foot floor, you know, and you couldn't put a lift on the floor uh, back then, at least anyway. Um, so it was a, you know, in that size wall, it begins to potato chip as well, you know, because it didn't have a really stiff, rigid back and it's so mm -hmm. tall and there's so much tiles to it all these connections, it starts to scallop a little bit and, you know, potato chips a bit. So we actually, we ended up having to get some ropes access guys repelling and, and uh, pull the wall, the, the two sides of the wall out a little bit to get the potato chip out. But in rigging it, I figured it for doing, I slaved it. I slaved the variable speed motors underneath two ton motors. I put two ton motors to the lift to pick the thing up and had like 12 of those things. Um, and then underneath that, I took a, variable speed motor and put it on a on a wire rope block that was like 10 feet long so it was just like enough to go up and down two feet you know and that was i i used the variable speed motors as like really big turnbuckles <laughs> and right. attach that back to the same truss you know so now i have a two-ton variable speed underneath my two-ton fixed speed and i flew the wall up on the fixed speed got it up and now like all the you know the variable speeds all have load cells in them so like all the readings are like half now because you know you're only carrying half the load on where the load where the load cell is and the variable speed when it's when it's uh reeved like that essentially so you know we were running it up and down millimeter by millimeter uh getting it to line up with the thing but i'm watching i'm like dude like these numbers you get some guys sometimes people get caught up on the numbers they want all the numbers to be equal across the thing and not really understanding that the numbers will be a little different depending on where the cable is and where the wall is and yep. the loading and, and this and that. And you, you, especially with grids, not even video walls, when you're doing grids, that's where it gets dangerous. I've noticed with dudes. And I'm like, no, no, the numbers don't have to be a set. Yeah. I know you think the number is, it should be an equal thing, but you have this thing and this is underneath this one. 
don't try to make the all the it's like the sound guy that makes all the dials just look pretty right yeah. like just turning them all and it just sounds like shit but they're just like i have to have the dial this way you know that's why i'm a crappy sound guy because i have to it's all got to be like <laughs> this you know it looks like a pretty picture on the board but like sounds like crap you know but like in the air it's like the numbers you have to be aware that that now you're applying so much extra load and you're you're probably flexing the truss a bunch to get that number to be right. like where you want it to be instead of letting gravity do what it needs to do. Now, especially the, the outside points, because they're taking half of a span, yeah. whatever that span, you know, imagine a beam that's 40 feet. You put it on three motors. You have two 20 foot spans. You have a motor in the middle. You have 20 feet to the left, 20 feet to the right. If you had four motors, uh, I'm actually going to jump to five just to make it easy. You have four 10 foot spans. Um, those end motors are taking half a span versus the inside ones were taking one span of weight. Now, as we said, the beam deflects, so that changes a little. So that's where if you look around, if you're a new rigger, you'll see loading charts or uh, beam deflection charts that say, you know, on two points, each one is taking 50%. On three, the outside two are taking, and I'm making these numbers up, like 0.33% and the middle one's taking 0.66. And the reason I'm making them up is because honestly, I don't keep it in my head anymore. And so mm -hmm. the more points you add, the percentage goes down, um, but the outside two points are always taking less weight. And yeah. the only way to make them take the same weight is to bend your beam so that it's deflecting. Um, and the other thing is... I had this discussion at the event safety summit a few years ago. I was giving a session on rigging for managers. Even what engineers do technically is theory. It's very, very good theory. And I'm not saying you shouldn't believe your engineer, but they're working based on certain assumptions like that. You hang the rig exactly as they calculated it. So you take that 40 feet of truss and you hung a projector nine feet from the end. And that's where you told them what it was going to be. And they did their calculations based on that. But when you get to the job site, you can't hang it at nine feet because the diagonal of the truss is in the way. So you hang it at eight foot, six inches. Well, you've just changed it. You've changed the math. You moved yeah. where that load is. Or you're assuming that the building steel is the same height for all of your points. And they're not half an inch off or yeah. more or less. Or you want to get in the weeds because we love getting in the weeds. You hang a really heavy show on your roof. Those beams deflect. Well, what if one beam is taking 10 bridles and the other beam is only taking one? So now the beam elevations are different. So all of those things are going to change the actual loads. Yeah. Especially like with the bridle example you gave, you know, because there's even when you get that much imbalance on your building beams, like you're talking about horizontal load now. That's yep. like, you know, if you didn't attach, you know, there's a lot of building trusses that are like they're attached at the roof at the top of that building truss and the building truss is five feet tall. But you can't bridle off the bottom of that truss because you'll bow the truss in. Right. So if yep. you get somebody who doesn't know, they do those 10 bridles off the bottom. You know, you, you potentially are building. You're, you're bowing your beams in on themselves. And now if there's snow load on that building while you're doing it, you're talking about, you know, some really bad stuff happening. <laughs> yeah, it, particularly uh, the term we use is bar joist, which yeah. is you're going to the warehouse and it's what looks like rebar as the diagonal is going between the top and yeah. bottom cords of angle iron. 
really strong in a vertical load, but you can't bridle off of those even on the top. Most engineers don't want you brighting off of those because they have no lateral resistance. The top is better because the sheathing's there, but they're designed, they're, you know, they're not designed for any lateral loads. So it's all those things. In the Northeast, we often, in the summers, we're like, well, it's not snowing. So we know we got, you know, snow load capacity that we could use up, um, which is, you know, freely admitted a rationalization of us doing something that is probably shady to begin with. Yeah. But, uh, but that doesn't fix the Boeing problem, right? Nope. Like you might take, yeah. oh yeah, we don't, that's just an overall like roof capacity, you know? Yeah. And that's just pounds per square foot on the thing. Yeah. It won't collapse, but it, you know, it's the same as like, you're going to put the horizontal line across there and then walk across it, you know, or the, you know, it, it, I've seen 20 inch, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too. 20, you, you get the decor peeps. They're hanging fucking eighth inch cable on their wire grid to hang all their flower chandeliers in the middle of a thing. And you go over and like, I don't understand why the 20 inch truss is bending. It's like laterally bending in because you've got like 20 every foot. You've done a cable and you've hung a flat pounds right in the middle of it. And every single time, like it's literally bowing the 20 inch truss in. Like, honestly, like you need to turn that truss on side and let the diag so, the top and bottom years and years ago. There's a uh, there's a organization that does uh, an annual outdoor Shakespeare festival in Boston. And uh, I used to the company I worked for used to provide the lighting and the ground support structure wasn't a roof because they didn't want it artistically to look like a concert. So they they wanted just a, a ground supported structure to hold the lights over the stage and of course, it's raining and, you, you know, you don't want to ruin your brand new moving lights that you get every year. So we would either do one of two things, bag every fixture or sometimes we would put up a vertical pipe above the trusses. So it's, let's say it was a 50 foot wide span or a 40 foot wide span. We would do pipe at the ends going vertically and run a three sixteenths aircraft cable between the tops of the pipe and then put uh plastic and form basically a little tp over the run of truss and it looked horrible it looked like a homeless community on top of the truss and how that looked better than a roof i don't know but that's what we did in numerous years people said oh i'll just clip off to that wire rope it's strong enough and only after quite a few years did you know we start to recognize you know what that's nowhere near strong enough. Yeah. That flat bridle, when you put a couple of hundred pounds in the middle of it, you're going to bend those Schedule 40 pipes over. You're going to probably yeah. twist the truss. You're just going to take the whole rig down. Um, and it wasn't malicious. You just didn't know what you didn't know. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Jobs were so much easier before you started learning stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I slept better, yeah. too. Yeah, I love learning shit though, man. Like it's, I'm really hard up on the education side of things, and thank you for your uh, endeavors into the education world. Well, Uh, thank you. And actually, that's that's how you and I first met. Was I was teaching a class at United's teaching rigging, and you brought some of your guys up. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time you and I met in person. Um, since then, and I can't believe it's been so many years already. 
um, you and I worked together on uh, the arena rigging certification as subject mm. matter experts. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Yeah. I'm a newbie talk. in there. Like this is like, I did this first year and I've been just trying to figure out what it is I'm doing with everybody. And is, so, does my voice really matter? And you know, you're in there with the, you know, the tops in the industry, you know, and well, let's talk about it, that. It can let's, be a little intimidating. Yeah. Let's shine some light on this process. So, I've talked before about the ETCP program and the process of creating the exams. So there's a pool of questions and I think we're at like eh, about 750 ish, a thousand questions for arena rigging, which they will pull from to create an individual exam. And uh, which is why when people ask what's pass fail for the exam and we say the the words that everyone hates, it depends. Yeah. It depends on which questions you get for your exam. And so ETCP exams questions are written by subject matter experts. A bunch of us riggers get together and we write questions and there's a very thorough process it's not like we're just writing these questions and we're like oh i think this is a good one and everyone goes yeah it's great and we throw it on the test yeah there's, there's a, a it's there's a, a massive amount of vetting yeah right and there's a company that uh literally they know nothing about rigging and they know everything about tests and so they we come up with the the nuts and bolts pun intended and then they talk about okay Here's how this question has like once we get Evolved a question over the years, right? Is, I found that to be the most interesting part of this process was seeing and hearing the statistics of how well questions perform uh, in over the years of people taking the test and reading that question and getting it right or wrong. I, I thought that was amazing, like the, that amount of static stats. How hard is it to write a question like a good question that gets accepted past the subject matter experts and then performs well in its, you know, infancy. And I'm purposely asking you that as a, a newer person because you've gone yeah. through the process. Well, I haven't, we have that's what I mean. Like we've gone through the process, but because of COVID this year, we had, we were oh. just about to start writing questions this year and it right. didn't come around, you know, I was waiting we're, to get my like, you know, teeth into actually like writing. Cause I got a couple. We were in like, review oh. process of new questions versus writing new questions. Yeah. So we got yeah. through the review of everything and we gave a thumbs up on like, all right, here's the exam for this year. It's all good. You know, we vetted the questions. We kicked a couple out. We put some, we chose some other ones in, rewrote a couple and here's the exam. And then it was like, okay, you know, next month we're going to start writing questions. And so blah, blah, blah. And then uh, we haven't really, it's been Crickets. adjourned you yeah. know, for quite some time now. Yep. So. Yeah. We, I, we just got an email a week and a half ago saying, Hey, we're, we're going to yeah. circle back around this to this. And we're like, woohoo. And, uh, Tony and I were two of the first responders. And we're like, you guys are, you, you need to get hobbies. You respond <laughs> fast. Like, I know. Oh. Right, well, five think, minutes know, for responses. Well, even though COVID's here and whatever, and people aren't working, I mean, you know, owning a company, like I have the literal, you know, it, it figuratively, literally, however you want to do it, pun intended, whatever, but like the weight of this company, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I want to make sure we're here on the other side, right? Yeah. So I come in every day, 
and I work in the benefit of BMW, right? I try to like, whether it's like, all right, let me, I'm, I'm either redoing like, cause you know, the way we kind of structure it out here, uh, you know, there's like five production riggers that work, that I work with, you know, and then there's the shop side and I try to treat the shop just like as if I was a production rigger going the four wall. I'm just some production rigger and I hand my gear list over to the sales rep and they tell me if the shit's available or not. And we work around and we work the list, right? So it's almost like two different factions in that regard in the company. And it's so, because we, the production riggers we have here, we, you know, we still, we do jobs with clients that have relationships with other companies and they provide the rigging. So we're only providing the labor. Right. right. We're only providing the production labor, you know, so we do production labor or we'll do the rigging labor as a whole or we'll do all the rigging, all the rigging labor and all the rigging gear out of the B&W shop. But sometimes it comes from like Christie or Fourwall, you know, or PRG, you know, we'll we work with everybody as well, you know, because you can't pigeonhole yourself. And at the end of the day, it's trusted motors. Right. Like yeah. everybody's got them. You know, so I can't say my one ton CM is better than your one ton CM. I mean, you can say like, yeah, we have a higher inspection rate and I know my shit's going to work, you know, but at the end of the day, it's still like if they're getting it cheaper, you know, it's, yep. it's tough. It's tough to compete as a company with the big boxes that way, you know, when they're giving away rigging packages. Well, I mean, it's fundamentally the reason why, why do lighting companies have trust in motors? Because at some point it was a a good financial choice to buy 40 feet of truss and a pair of half tons or one tons instead of sub renting it and going and picking it up and bringing it back and then having to return it when the show's done. I said, Hey, all that time that I'm burning, paying a person to go pick it up for, you know, the one day hit, I can buy the truss. I can buy the motors. Okay. And then uh, I need two more motors and four more pieces of truss. And the next thing you know, you got 700 feet of truss and 30 motors. And you're like, oh, look. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, there, there, I know of large national companies that only do rigging because it allows them to get the lighting package. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, like, so it's a, it, it okay. can be a tough market try to compete in. But, you know, it, there's also the. That another reason, you know, like I mentioned before, the eclectic style of rigging that we end up getting brought in to do in a lot of these found buildings, right? We, yeah. we do a lot of rigs in a lot of places that were never meant to suspend anything. And we go in there and we bring in, you know, we work a lot with McLaren Engineering and, and uh, Theta Engineering, a uh, couple other peeps, you know, and we we go in and we'll determine like how much a building can hold and then like what we can do to hang a show in here. And then even just process of getting in and out of that building may involve us building a structure to be able to like lift up scissor lifts and plop them into the building. So we can then like actually do the work, right. uh, you know, so we, that's not just hanging lighting trusses, you know? So if you're, we're coming in and, and a lot of times, you know, it helps to get the rigging package in there early. And since we're putting up the grid anyway, we'll hang all your trust to hang the lights on. You know, there's some venues in New York, you can't just roll pre-rig truss into the place, no matter how much you'd love to, because first it's like an Egyptian pyramid to get up into the building and you can't like just push that shit up there. And then you get into the space and the roof doesn't have enough capacity for all that, that, uh, that HUD truss, you know? You got to hang it on 12 inch because like you're just, it's either hanging on 12 inch or cut eight moving lights. 
And they're like, well, I want yeah, I my moving lights. Yeah, I can't and, cut well, the moving lights. And, and we got to downsize the truss because yeah. like we can do the span, the 12 inch will handle the span and the, for the number of lights you're putting on it. You just want to pre-rig it all because it makes it easier and faster on site. But like you, you, we just don't have the capacity to do that, you know? So it, that's always a, a, a banter of trying to like get the budget to make sense and get the, the like get the building to work with the budget and with what the final product of the lighting designer needs it to be. You know? All the variables, Slide, yeah. sliding, changing the variables to see, you know, again, we, we, Jeff Reeder and I have joked for years about, you know, when he designs trusts for different manufacturers, I'm like, do you just have a chart on the wall with a bunch of sliders and you can move the variables? <laughs> like if I change the angle of the diagonal, you mm -hmm. just see the numbers change for capacity, but yeah. I change the spacing between the diagonal. You know, mm -hmm. that's all it is, is all right. I want X, Y, and Z. How do we get mm -hmm. there? Okay. Well, we can do it, but we have to use steel instead of aluminum. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I, and I can deal with that on this project or, you have to give up this concession to make this thing work. So, um, and, and that, and that's the cool thing about trying to find some of these found spaces is figuring out these structures and how do you make yeah. it work? And, well, you know, there's like a certain, there's an algorithm of like how to put a show in and out. Right. Like, it's kind of yeah. like, you know, we've all been doing this a long time. So we all know the rhythm of trying to put a show in and out. So there's these things we need to do. And then it's just the variables that come in, you plug into the algorithm. Like they're, they're not so much variables. They're like, we know there's going to be something screwed up with the loading dock. So we got to fix that. And that's going to slow down shape unless, we, you know, so it'll slow it down in one way, unless we invest a little bit of money in building something that will make it go faster. Right. Yep. And so if you invest a little bit in that, your show gets in the building faster. And you might be able to cut a day if you like do a pre-rig. Like if you do a, a, a small crew on a pre-rig the day before and the building lets you do that, then you can cut a whole day off of your load in, you know, because you've yeah. just created the access that much easier. That's that whole fast, good and cheap pick two. Yeah. You can have it yeah. fast and good, but it's not going to be cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I don't know if anyone's tried this before, but on a, a tour application, I wonder, I mean, the reality is even the big mega tours have it down to pretty efficient in terms of the amount of time it takes them to load in their show, um, the number of bodies they need and the, the hours it takes to do that. Um, I know on some of the big stadium tours, they do leapfrog stuff. So they'll go in, you know, maybe the building structure and rigging goes in first. But on arena tours, you really don't see uh, pre-rig in terms of not pre-rigged fixtures on truss, but a separate package of the same rigging going in. And maybe that's because we've gotten to the point where all the lights are in the truss. So really, it doesn't buy you anything. Um but it'd be interesting to see the cost analysis of, you know, hey, if we can pre-rig a show and get it done faster and mm -hmm. speed up the load-in process. But it's, that, you know, yeah. it's it it all turns into like when, you know, on the one-off sense, because it's primarily what we do is like these, like we do massive one-offs, you know, where we're putting 150, 200 points. Uh, we get a pre-rig day for that, but sometimes we don't get a pre-rig, but we only get a head start. And so we start on one end of the room and we get like this yeah. pull part of the pull done. And we have another team come in behind them. You know, uh, it's a matter of like, is, 
is the building more expensive than the labor? You know, if the building's right. cheaper, then do the extra day. If the but the building and it, and I I really feel like the venue just like looks at how much the labor is going to cost and then tells the people how much the venue is going to cost so that they yeah. forces them into less like you got to pay more per day. You know, because yep. there's no way you're going to get enough labor to get it done, or you have to put so much labor on it. You know, and, and it gets a little insane sometimes with some of the contracts. You know, I feel bad for the guys because, like, there's like contracts I've rolled into buildings where the entire crew has to start when I start rigging. And like, yeah, but we're you know any anywhere else we would do a split a split call and have like lighting come in five hours later, so that right. rigging gets like you know. But once rigging starts, everybody has to be there. So the whole electrics crew, the video guys, they're all on the call. And I'm like, what? You're going to watch it. You're just going to stand around and watch us like rig that, for five hours. Yeah. It's like, well, at that point, don't prep your lighting. Yeah. So you're prepping that five hours <laughs> where you're waiting for the riggers to be like, listen, if I. It's crazy, hell, though, because I feel bad for the guys like they're making buku bucks at the end of it, but they don't start work. when they start working. They're like starting their eighth hour on the call. And it's like, yeah. oh, I finally get to hang the video wall. It's like, so now I'm in time and a half while I do it. And that's great. But now you're up for 36 hours because you're eight, 10 hours behind where you're supposed to start your 18 hour day. You're four hours into boredom. The first four hours you were okay, but the second four hours you're bored out of your mind. And then you have to work and work fast because you still have a deadline. Yeah. 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 It does sometimes. Yep. I scratch, scratched my head on, on a lot of projects and it was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Yeah. It's, you know, it's pushing them away and it puts it into such like not safe circumstances for like the mental, the mental fortitude of people, you know, especially like the upriggers that are pulling all that shit and then coming down, they, they have their adrenaline dump, they get on the floor and, you know, they've just spent so much time up there in a, in a very jacked sense of awareness you know, yep. and then they go have their coffee and they're like talking the mile a minute. And then 20 minutes later, like they're about to fall asleep. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a rigor in, in all essence of the word of like, you know, pulling points and putting shows in that way. And sometimes the empathy has gone away because the job gets done efficiently and effectively. Right. And yeah. And well, it's kind of the, I feel the for the guys that, that way. We, it's kind of the saying that we've been talking about, which is uh, the industry has talked about everyone who works behind the curtain to say no one ever sees them. And now's the time that we need the public to see us to see a what effect we have on the rest of society, that we're not just entertainment, but we are a vital part of a society and how from a mental health standpoint, people go to shows to relax, to forget about the troubles mm-hmm. of their day and to be, you know, as an escape. And we help create that environment and not being able to do so affects the audience, affects the people working. And it's not just the money, but it's also, um, you know, the number of people who are ashamed about the fact that they're collecting unemployment because they're like, I've never collected unemployment before. I've always worked my yeah. ass off. I've always found a job, made you know, made good choices financially or made bad choices financially and <laughs> still were able to succeed, whatever the case may be. But now we're in a situation where you need that assistance and it, and it hits people's pride 
and they feel ashamed yeah. about it. So now you're like, oh, well, I'm depressed about this fact. And I, I thought it was like a, a second just before to go back to like the, the a community that uses shows as an escapism from day to day life to relax. Right. You know, but also I look at that in the sense of like the word community and, you know, because, you know, people that go to a nine inch nail show aren't the same. They don't look like the same people that go to see the Eagles, you know. So it's it's an environment that allows you as an individual to be with other like minded people. Certainly. You know, which creates community and yep. acceptance. Right. And so, you know, I've been really I, I've talked about with a bunch of my friends a lot, you know, the, the sense of, you know, I self identity that people have and what something as COVID has really brought to the, the forefront of my mind is the sense of purpose that people have in their lives. You know, like I, ha I'm a father, I have two kids and that's a huge part of my self identity. But then you go on to think about like my job is also a huge part of my identity and I don't have that right now, you know? Right. And, and that sense of purpose, uh, people need that in general. People work more for, uh, I don't want, I don't want down talking to say like the, the pat on the back. Oh, good job, brother. But like people work for, you know, gratitude and respect, well, a sense of you pride. know, yeah. A sense of pride just as much as like they need to feed feed their family yeah. and their mouths, you know, yep. but, but even more so, you know, especially in our industry, because it's so unique. People in our industry are passionate about this, you know, because it's a lot of it's the arts. They, a lot of them come from yeah. artists, art backgrounds, which has greater meaning in inside a, a person's, you know, albeit soul, you know, so. Well, and it's fundamentally, yeah. it's that creation process, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, there are a lot of things outside of our industry, engineers, rocket scientists, you know, yes, a lot of people create stuff, but there are a lot of jobs where you're not creating anything. Yeah, yeah. you create paperwork, you create a sales order, you create mm -hmm. a, a sale, but it's different. It You're not yeah. creating, a, you know, an making experience. Widgets, yeah, you know? exactly. And exactly. the deadline to make that widget is variable. You know, uh, you yep. know, we're making, we need to make 500 widgets. Uh, we need by next week. Uh, we can't do that. Well, we need by the week after that. And eh, maybe we can. So it's like, yep. it's a flexible deadline. And, you know, so in and our industry, that's not know. important. And, yeah. and, and, but the problem is you can't take 12 million of us from our industry into that position because our mindset doesn't fit that the same way yeah. theirs doesn't fit ours. You, there are always guys and girls who would work in the shop and you could tell, all right, this person's not long for the shop because they're not, not that they're too smart, but it doesn't stimulate their brain enough. And then there every once in a while, you'd get someone come in very smart person, but their mentality was perfect for working in the shop. They yeah. cared enough to make sure the correct quantity of the correct item got pulled or put away, but that's it. They didn't but care they also, so much. And they love the problem solving of logistics yep. and yeah, like exactly. putting packing trucks and this and that. And they, they feel a sense of accomplishment in that. Yep. And there's some people who just don't have that sense in them and they, exactly. they need to physically have something built there. Yeah. You know? Yep. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so recently, 
uh, very recently, a few days ago, you actually did a roundtable with Four Wall. They have a, yes. a very good video series that they do. Um, and this was the first one. Uh, obviously, them as a lighting company, most of them have been for lighting, some scenic stuff. Uh, they did a rigor roundtable. Um, what they asked some really good questions. One of the questions, uh, one of the answers from one of the panelists was talking about, Hey, you've been sitting at home and you go to work and you, you go to pull a chain and you're blown up right away. Um, something you had mentioned earlier made me think about that in terms of, you know, riggers getting gassed from the, you know, Mm -hmm. adrenaline drop afterwards. But that is something to also think about is the fact that if we haven't been as involved physically, then you get a gig and you go and you hit it with that same mental uh, focus and your body's just not cooperating. And that's something that we should probably be aware of is to watch each other, especially when things start ramping back up is, hey, your mind's saying yes, but if your body's not going to cooperate until you get back into that show shape to say, um, it can cause some issues. Yeah. Well, I've always been a proponent also of like, of the fitness aspect of what it takes to do the job, you know, um, you know, they, and these are like, you know, people make choices in their lives, you know, and there's good choices and bad choices and whatnot. Um, you know, I try to stay with the mental acuity you need to do the job is what you, you know, you to find balance with all the mental you have, you need to have some physical going on as well. Um, and I think when when we do get back to hitting it real hard, you know, it's like dudes that go back to the gym that haven't been, that have been off. They just can't do it as long, you know. So I don't think there'll be as much of a problem of people doing. it like guys again with the adrenaline like i know like there when i was a kid pulling points i would like get up there and i'd be banging out points but then like the next day you know even though i'm young i'd be fucking sore you know especially when you get put in a position uh with the i don't know whether to say lack of respect to what the work is but at the end of the day like the upbringer guys you know if they're pulling them the points themselves there's only so many pull-ups a dude can do in a day there's only yeah. so many times you can rep out like doing this much weight, you know, of whatever that is. So it's like there's, there's an endurance fatigue that happens in that. And sometimes it's not respected in the uh, count of dudes that you need to pull a show and keep a tempo and not kill the guys to do it. Right. There's, there's a, a thing I was discussing with some friends the other day, which is, we have taken the word ignorance and turned it into a very negative thing. So if you call someone, hey, you're ignorant about X, Y, and Z, that that's an insult. When, in fact, the, the word ignorant is not intended to be the same as stupid, but a lack of knowledge on a particular subject. You are mm-hmm. ignorant to quantum mechanics. Doesn't mean you can't fix that. Mm-hmm. So... When you were talking about, you know, the term of whether it was respect or something, there is ignorance by, from a lot of people who don't uprig about the job, which is yeah. why we have that stereotype of, you know, go on to any Facebook rigging page and you'll see somewhere a fight about uprigger versus ground rigger and who's the real rigger. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to me, it's like, well, there's difference. And, you know, each one has a different role, a different responsibility, different skill set. And uh, that, you know, upriggering is not just pulling chains. It is also working safely, being comfortable working at height. It may be some rope access skill or, you know, if you're part of a rescue team, being able to work at height to do a high angle rescue, whatever those things are, it's not just muscle. Yeah. And, and we know that because some of my very first guests, like Yana, talking about, you know, breaking into the business as a female rigger and riggers looking at her going, uh, how can she pull a chain? Yeah. It's like, well, she can. And maybe, and there are applications where she can do it better than you because of her size, not being yeah. as tall as you are or yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, you know, someday I just dream of a world where upriggers and downriggers get together and can be partners yeah well that's you know i like to i like to think that the group of dudes that we regularly work with with bmw that we have going on here we kind of maintain that kind of philosophy because i don't really draw a line between upriggers and downrigger everyone's a rigger everyone that yeah. works with us everybody's got fork cert everybody's got boom lift cert everybody knows how to use a harness they all can eat so when i walk on the site it doesn't matter who's there that's on the crew I get you today. You're up, you're down there. You know, yeah, it's, it's not just task. like these guys are the only upriggers we have. There yeah. are the guys that go up all the time because they're really good at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that when we have a ground sport structure that there's no climbing, they're not on the call too, working just as hard. Right. Exactly. You know? Um, so I, 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 I'd start to draw that line between up and down guys with, are they actually climbing? Or are they just walking out on a beam? You know, and I know that's a little bit drastic or in, in some respects, but, you know, with the genre of rigging, like you should know what the up guy does and be able to do those things. And they're, the dude's working at height. But there is, is a, a really big difference between a dude that's on a catwalk and clips into the horizontal fall arrest that's at six feet right above their head. And they yep. can hold on to that wire while they like, walk of it not hold on the wire but you know hold that as to help balance themselves yeah. while they walk on a beam that's like a foot and a half wide compared yeah. to a dude that needs to climb from the ground up on an arching 160 foot tall arching steel structure that's a truss that you can't walk on top of you have to climb on the outside of and so you're clipping in fall protection where it's not necessarily ropes access because you're not on rope, you're climbing and there's fall protection. And if you had a wire, but it's like rock climbing. horizontal thing, it, it's, but it's like rock climbing. So there's it's definitely depend- a difference. Yeah. Between. It's dependent on the worker's physical strength to maintain contact with the building structure yeah. versus just not losing balance. And, and not minimizing losing balance, but yeah, the, absolutely. I, you know, there are old stories of Rocky in the Cow Palace in San Francisco climbing those beams without a harness. And they just, you know, grab on a beam and start climbing. And yeah. um, I did a pay-per-view down in Marietta, Georgia, at the Cobb County Civic Center. And um, there's a failure in design. It's a pyramid st- roof so you had four main beams at the four edges of the pyramid that went up to the top 
And that's what we were supposed to hang our four motors off. It was, you know, pro wrestling. So it was a 40 by 40 box, four motors. Well, the boom that could fit into the building could not reach high enough to where those motors had to be. And so the person in charge of the company was irate and came to me as the assistant lighting designer at the time and said, how did WCW do it in here? And I looked at him and I said, they probably just climbed the beams. And he looked at the rigger and goes, so what would it take to climb the beams? And the rigger went, an extra 500 bucks cash right now. <laughs> you know, he would do it. I mean, he had a cool nickname, which I'm not going to repeat, but um, <laughs> I had no doubt that he would have done it, but that was his price. And this is the yeah. late 90s. So, you know, probably not even a sit harness. Yeah. So, well, yeah, there were different that price. I was like, OK, it's worth it. Here's 500 bucks. Get up. Yeah. there. We see what happens. Yep. yep. You know, now it's like, you know, I, I it's not it. It's getting easier because the producing companies are having a better understanding, especially in these found buildings about the safety of the workers and the fall protection that we need time to put fall protection in prior to these guys, like getting out there. Cause it's a yeah. different, you can't just hire any rigger to go install all your horizontal lifeline fall protection shit. Right. It's not like you can just be like, okay, you got a harness, get up there now provide all the fall protection first before we do it. You know, you need like really trained people to do that. Yeah. And that's the biggest struggle is people not having the uh, the knowledge base to design the fall arrest properly. Mm -hmm. It goes back to that story. Hey, I can use quarter inch wire rope. It's It's got a breaking strength of 7000 pounds. That's more than enough. And not understanding the, the engineering behind that. And then, you know, it's the advances we've made to date are wonderful. But the yeah. biggest significant one for me is rescue plans, mm -hmm. um, especially in the one off environment where it's you're in and out. Let's be honest. How many people here show up and actually have someone in charge say, OK, here's the fall arrest we're going to be using. It's a horizontal lifeline. And here's our rescue plan. Um, if we still have power, we're going to lower the truss in. If we don't have power, so and so is going to get the boom lift these two people are going to clear out the chairs and we're going to do the rescue that way. Or these people are working on the ground, but they have rope access training and they're going to go up to the grid and repel down and save the, whatever the situation would be. Who does that on a one-off? I bet you 99% of us don't. Yeah. And I say that very specifically to say us, because it's not like any, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't do it every single time. That's the advance we need to take in fall arrest. To this next step, Every, people are getting the gear side of it. Now so it's the rescue side. To a a, a, a jur not jurisdiction, not even geopolitical, but in the in the sense of like what people, what companies don't understand, and even in like I've even found like local IATSE members don't understand, is that fall protection is PPE and it's provided by the employer, right? Yep. So it's that's what it's supposed to be. But all these guys, like, they don't get their call. They don't get a rig call unless they bring their own harness. And it's like, yeah, but you're not required to do that. Your your employer is supposed to do that. So if the employer, who is just some labor company that is making money off the backs of the workers, you know, and they they have an understanding. Oh yeah, everybody's got to have a helmet. But they forget like the fact that like you have you have, you're supposed to provide all these 
harnesses, you know, and have a yeah. and have a, a who's providing the rescue kit that you're supposed to like rescue with. Who provides that? And if your employer is providing that, that person they should be representative of that employer there to make sure you're using it right. Because if something happens, it comes back on them. You know, I, it's another reason why I'm like a proponent of B&W providing its own labor for jobs, you know, these large jobs where it's like there may be like one overriding labor company that's doing labor for everybody. I still fight to make sure like I like I can, you know, it's all the same dudes. You know, they're all working and they're like they just jumped yeah. from the labor company. So it's like, well, I can run payroll. And I'm going to provide the harnesses and provide like the education to use this gear and make sure it, that they are adequately, that there's adequate counts of dudes to pull the number of points so that there isn't the issue of fatigue uh, in the later hours of a call, you know? So it's like the, to be able to maintain that kind of control to help like utilize the crew of your company, because a company at the end of the day is a group of people that are working together in in with purpose in the same direction right like we're we're a company just like the military calls this is a company of people you know a company is a group of people you know i'm not it's just not anybody coming over from somebody provided me some people to push some stuff around because we're not just unloading trucks you know so i i get kind of passionate about that end of it because uh it's that's that's what provides the safety of doing it right you know having some kind of accountability to who is responsible for the safety of these people absolutely um i'm actually trying to bring something uh looking for something that uh recently happened that you you know um there it is looking for the name um we just recently this past week, uh, a few days ago in New York City, uh, had a situation where a um, member of Local One fell at the um, Winter Garden. And you mentioning fall arrest and, and stuff made me think of that. So one, I do want to mention that uh, the, the rigging community's condolences go out to the family of Peter Wright, who unfortunately fell and uh, did not survive. Um, and at this point we have zero details and I usually in situations like this, like to wait until the OSHA report comes out because you'll hear a lot of different stuff and we can speculate and that usually doesn't help actually get to a point of learning from the situation to make sure we don't repeat that. Um, but, uh, he was working on stage doing something. He fell, he, uh, hit his head pretty severely and unfortunately succumbed to the injuries. Um, so wanted to mention my condolences to the family and, and to the community as a whole in New York. Um, it, it's never good regardless of if you're a union person or a non-union person or any of that BS still a person and still had family and, and, uh, and still was working in our business, creating, you know, yeah. the art that we love. Now, it hurts and it hurts. It makes me sad and so angry at the same time, you know, and I know, I know probably more than most about the issue. I didn't, I didn't know Peter, uh, personally, I worked, I, I met him once or twice, uh, in the, in my tenure here in New York. Um, I do have friends that work on Beetlejuice and, and know him, uh, knew him 
uh, pretty well, you know, very well. Uh, so it, it's tough. That, that is definitely really hard. Um, I don't know the details specifically, but I know theater. We've all done it. We've all been on the jump. We've all yep. been like on the loading gallery. Oh, the line set here. It's coming in. Oh, fouled this cable. Oh, it's only, it's just right there. Yeah. You lean over. You, oh, let me just hop on the rail a little bit. And I, lean can out. Reach if I, I can reach if I, I can stand reach on the right tow rail. And you do that a thousand times. And then the next yep. time, oh, let me just hop up, hop up on the next side. You know, I don't know if that's what happened. And yeah, I, no, yeah, 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 exactly. What happened, but I do know they were loading that show out. And I do know like that that is atypical for what goes on on the jump, yeah. you know, yep. and all it takes is a split second. I actually, I, 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 uh, I posted some stuff on my, when it happened, there's a quote that I thought was astoundingly um, poignant in, in what it, in what it was. I want to get the quote right. Cause um, it really pertains to what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Um, here it is. Um, it is only when caught in the swift and sudden turn of death do we see the silent, subtle, ever-present peril of life. And that's by Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's like that, like, I really captures the essence of, like, we don't really think about the the circumstances we're in when we're doing something that's dangerous, you know, and we are complacently starts to fill the air and you just like, do it. like I survived a thousand times. And can't can't be understated how profound that statement is in the current uh, situation, not only um, with work, but also with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the, the mindset of, Oh, it's not that bad. Or it's not affecting. I'll survive it. Right. Right. And, and not thinking about, but what does it do to your environment around you and those who yeah. are going to interact with your environment and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and the people around you that you may have it and you don't even have symptoms, but they won't make it through it because they yeah. have whatever underlying thing, you know, it's, uh, it can be, it is utterly frustrating to see the self motivated conservation of individuals that aren't willing yeah. to work with society. We're not asking like to infringe on your freedoms. People aren't, it, it, this isn't forever either, you know, uh, why you know, can't I, you help? Right? People who know me, uh, tend to know that I, 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 I will be all over the place on different topics. I'm a conundrum wrapped in an enigma. Yeah. Um, but, the and this is my personal opinion that those who feel that it's a violation of your rights, I recognize that. What I'm asking is for you to be a contributing member of your community, like we talked about earlier, and make a choice to support that community by doing something for other people. That's the point. I'm and not the asking rights of other people that have that you know, other people have rights to not be infected by this. Certainly, know? certainly. But it, you know, yeah, I I, of that I think it's. I personally think it's better to ask people to do the right thing because it's the right thing versus saying do the right thing because other people have rights as well. Yeah. At some some point, somebody's got to be the bigger person. 
So you might as well be that person. And I will give you all the credit in the world for doing that if 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 I see it. Um, and easier said than done. Yeah. You know, we can all talk about things, but it's 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 hard to do it yourself. But, you know, if we we do it again as a community and together and support each other, then you can get through that stuff. And then eventually you can go back to just being an a-hole and pissing everyone off because that's what entertains you. So, yeah. Right. yeah. It's also right. the sense of like uh, uh, the sense of community that we have, you know, right? Exactly. The contributing member of community of the community that you're in. Yeah, yeah, and we we talked about community quite a bit. Yeah, bigger than rigging, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's lighten it up. Yeah, I'm going to ask you the hard one. It's the one that stumped quite a few. Do you have any good and or horribly bad rigging jokes? Uh, yeah, I knew that one was coming. And I, you know, I actually, I, w- I tried to come up with some. I looked some up. And there's the ones, like, I tell all the time. But some of them are very visual. I don't know if, like, they'd come off okay. I don't know. Like, you know, the whole dragon bowling. I don't know if you know about the dragon bowling. Um, and I don't know if that's uh, what they're trying to tell because, like, it's all visual. Visual. Yeah, uh, but I uh, and you know I'm sure you've done a bunch of these. Has, has anybody talk about uh, aluminum truss and like you know why? Why it's aluminum? Yeah. So it doesn't rust waiting for the riggers to get it off the floor. I like to say electricians because they take forever yeah. to put the lights on the thing. Like it's there, it's in the building already. <laughs> it's waiting for you. Come on. <laughs> yeah. That's not my gigs. My gigs are just waiting. <laughs> I, I think I've told the, the, the one about um where did the riggers say at the crucifixion. What? I could have done that in two points. Eh. <laughs> There's another one which is a visual, which is you pretend you're on the cross and, and it's a struggle of pulling your hands off of the cross. And so you do the left hand and you really, really the joke is you got to spend time in the effort and the pain of not to get too graphic, pulling your hand through the nail to get it off. So you get the right hand down and you breathe and you're like, oh, that was a lot of work. And then you look at the left hand and you work and you struggle and you get that down. And then the joke is once your hands are free, there's nothing holding you up there. So you go, whoa. And then and since we're on the riff of the crucifixion jokes, the last one is Christ is on the cross. Mm hmm. And he's sitting there and he's he's getting near the end and it's Peter, Peter, and Peter's at the bottom of the hill and here's me just ah and he starts running up the air. I'm coming, Lord, I'm coming. Peter. Yes, Lord, yes, sir, I'm coming. Peter, I need you. Yes, Lord, Lord, I'm here. What is it, Lord? I can see your house from here. <laughs> it's not really a rigging joke, but you know, hey. I, I, have, I have like one I tried to write up and I'm not sure if it, it'll be funny because I haven't said it out loud. Uh, I have like two of them. So I'll see if like you'll see if, if, if it's funny. Um, how's it go? Uh, I had a uh, never mind. I mean, I had a I had a rigor. I had a rigor rope joke, but it's totally not funny. You, you should it. try it. Yeah. I yeah. just did. It's totally not, not funny. funny. <laughs> not funny. Yeah. That's a bad one. I had to, I had to put that pause in there to like really try to make it funny. <laughs> I, uh, 
And it's horrible that I can't remember, but one of the previous guests was talking about that their kid was helping them create bad rigor jokes. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. I have one about rates. Why do why do riggers demand a high rate for their trade? Because riggers are not for profit. Oh. Um. <laughs> Yeah, that's a bad one. <laughs> I, I, I should throw good. somewhere in there, right? <laughs> the problem is they're not, as we've said, there aren't a lot of rigor jokes. So it's, you got to dig to find them. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that certainly lightened the mood or at least alienated a whole bunch of listeners with bad jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably alienated them at the beginning when I said hello. Um, well, Tony, I think we're going to wrap things up. I uh, I appreciate you taking time talking about uh, some of your projects you've worked on. I will put in uh, a link to the shed to their website. There are some cool videos there about that project. Um, yeah, you know, all of our I've been really hard up on the Instagram uh, since COVID hit because I never was into Instagram before. So I've been doing a lot of like remember whens on some of our cooler. Yeah, job yeah. So so. I'll throw, I'll throw up your Instagram and the uh, Facebook, the BMW Facebook page, a lot of cool projects, a lot of interesting stuff with mod trust, um, some really fun stuff. And uh, again, I appreciate uh, hearing stories from you and uh, the enthusiasm that you have for our industry is awesome. And yeah, um, I, I really I feel I, I try to be a student of the game. Right. And I, like, yep. I absolutely love this industry, everything about it. Like I sit in on like Ethernet fucking video seminar stuff just because like I want to know what video wall guys need to know from me, like what's going to help them. You know, like I really enjoy the banter and, uh, you know, trying to make these jobs efficient. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And I will apologize that, you know, there was no episode last week. I took a down week, celebrated my birthday. So, yeah, get over it. And uh, <laughs> and with that, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.